Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Pierpoint, who is the CEO and co-founder of the Retrofit Academy. Welcome to the podcast, David, and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So today, I would love to demystify retrofit standards and certifications and training because there's a lot of acronyms and technical jargon in this space. And whilst they can do a huge amount of good, I see a risk that knowledge and certification and qualifications acts as a bit of a moat, holding good people with good intentions back from having the impact that they could have if they're not well understood. So hopefully this podcast can go some way to to help people to understand that space. Let's start really basic then. How do you define retrofit in general, if you were explaining it to my mum? My mum's a music teacher, so she knows relatively little about real estate and retrofit. Okay. Well, given she's a music teacher, I might point her in a direction of the recently released retrofit rap, which is a pretty good introduction. <laughs> but um, right. think, uh, yeah, I'll put a, uh, we'll us, put a link in the chat to that. Are you not going to do No, I don't know it. it <laughs> someone quite famous did it, and it's and I, well, you must put a link in below uh, okay. the line or whatever it is. I'll send you a link to it. It's amazing. But seriously, it's pretty simple what retrofit is. It's the process of improving your home to make it warmer, healthier, and cheaper to heat. And there are lots of ways in which you can do that. There are, suppose, the right way, and, and sometimes there's the wrong way. So, you know, retrofit is about trying to do it the right way. And generally, we improve our homes by improving the insulation, the amount of insulation that we apply to our walls, by upgrading our windows, our doors, insulating floors, lofts, cavities, and then also replacing things like gas central heating with heat pumps or reducing the amount of electricity we have to draw from the national grid by installing solar panels. So it's a combination of improving the fabric of a building, the, what it's made of, and the ways in which it's heated and powered. Okay, excellent explanation. And we will try to find and link the retrofit wrap, which I haven't heard yet, but I feel I should. <laughs> it's genius. <laughs> it is genius. So um, what does the Retrofit Academy do and why do you do that? Well, we describe ourselves as the driving force in retrofit skills and knowledge. Now, I should explain, I've been banging on this door about retrofit skills for just over a decade. It's become my life's work, that's for sure, which was something of a surprise to me. We have a mission to train 200,000 competent retrofitters by the end of this decade, which is an absolutely terrifying mission statement, but an absolute necessity if we're to deliver on our retrofit aspirations, which I'm sure we'll come on to. So we do things like uh, we develop new courses and training where it's needed, where there's gaps, where other people haven't done that. We've developed courses to train some people that I'm sure we'll talk more about, like retrofit coordinators, retrofit assessors, retrofit advisors. And we deliver that training directly. We've trained or in process of training 5,000 retrofitters now, 5,000 since we started, which is around about five years ago. And we also support those people. Once we've trained them, we support them into effective practice. So we're very keen on the competent bit of our mission statement of training 200,000 competent retrofitters. We want them to know what they're doing, not just have a piece of paper which says that they might. 
And then finally, we work with government and the education sector to build up a training network. So we really need our colleges and universities and other training institutions around the country to be able to build and train people. And they themselves face some very real barriers to being able to do that effectively. So we have a retrofit academy training network, which we're sort of training the trainers in and helping them develop the capability of doing that effectively. Amazing. Okay. And I really does fill a gap. Like you said, we really need enough people to deliver the change that is needed in the housing market. And without qualified people, it's going to be very difficult to do it. So what is AS2035 and how did that emerge? Well, that took up a, a huge part of the last decade <laughs> of my life, really. So if, you, so if we wind the clock... <laughs> yeah, if we wind the clock back 10 years... We really weren't on the right way with retrofit at all. We had some government schemes, which ministers like to make on claims about how many measures have been installed and so on and so forth. But we weren't really delivering retrofits in terms of, you know, we weren't driving towards net zero targets. We weren't really cutting carbon emissions in any substantial way. We were just funding things like replacing gas boilers with new gas boilers or any odd loft or filling the odd cavity. And not only that, we were doing a lot of those things really, really badly and making a lot of people's lives who have this stuff installed pretty miserable. So, you know, after, what was it, around about 2016, the government recognized what was going on and poor standards being delivered and it commissioned a review of the sector. That was called the Each Home Counts Review, which I and a number of other people were very heavily involved in. And that was a government-sponsored report which concluded exactly as I've just described that those kind of things were happening and and we needed to protect homeowners or consumers, as it called them, sort of the worst excesses of the industry. So one of the recommendations that that made was the need for a British standard, effectively, that would be applied when retrofit programs were being delivered, that would build in good practices and get away from the sort of back of a fag bracket approach, which had um, been fairly prevalent. And PAS 2035 is the name of that standard. So it's been around now. It's published in 2019. Like all new standards, it caused chaos and confusion and a whole load of finger pointing for a period of time, but it's now sort of bedded down and become sort of the accepted standard for delivery. Mm-hmm. And why is it so important? I mean, we've talked, of course, about the impact on individual property owners or residents, consumers, however you describe it. But it's also important for the market, from, for example, for funding, right? So why is it so important now for the housing market going forward in addition to just having a good standard? Because retrofit's really expensive and it's really risky. And I'm not trying to put your investors off by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I, I speak to many investors myself and they want to invest in things which are increasingly inexpensive and inherently not risky. So unless we do something about that quality and with quality comes speed of delivery and efficiency of delivery and all those sorts of things. We're never going to make much of a dent in in retrofitting the housing stock. And not only that, you know, there's a huge financial risk that comes with it. So we can only afford to do retrofit once. We're going to retrofit 27 million homes. Let's say that each of those retrofits costs us £25,000. We're looking at a bill deliver that of, if my sums are right, somewhere around £675 billion, which a lot of this podcast should see as a financial opportunity, not just as a bill, of course. But we don't want to be doing it twice. <laughs> no one wants to pay the bill for that twice. It's, it's the equivalent of four years of the annual NHS budget. 
So we really need to get it right first time. And we need to be giving investors, whether they're public or private sector, confidence that the sector can deliver a good quality product. I always stress this point as well, that doing bad retrofit or doing retrofit badly is worse than not doing it at all. Why do you say that, David? Because you can make, say you take a home that is cold and rusty. You might say, well, there's, there's a home that needs to be improved. You make it very, very airtight. Don't ventilate it properly when you've done that. You are going to cause horrific problems with mold and damp in that property yeah. every single time. And that's one of, I think, researchers identified somewhere around 100 unintended consequences of bad retrofit. And when you force someone to live in those sorts of conditions, it leads to them getting ill. So it's bad enough being cold and poor. If you then add into that, you, know, you might solve the cold bit, but you're going to make people ill. And we shouldn't be doing that in the 21st century. So there's a lot of support for social housing providers and local authorities to retrofit, but there's actually not that much guidance for private rental sector investors, which is one of the reasons that that tenure is starting to fall behind. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on what private rental sector landlords should be doing? Mm. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I'll, I'll explain, it's not a sector we focused on very much. The reason for that is there's been no imperative to do so. Though in the public sector, in social housing, you know, there are major funding programs. In the private rented sector, I think we've had a lack of clarity on what the policy goals and objectives are going to be. And, and therefore, it's not been at the same level of priority for us that it perhaps should be. But what I would say is that there's no reason that shouldn't change. The way to change it would be for those people in that sector, perhaps including yourself, Anna, who feel that something should be done about it to coalesce, work with us and create a plan. And that's the way we've always operated. So you get a group of like-minded people together who say there's a problem here, we need to fix it and we fix it. So we sort of take a very tickle view to those sorts of things. I don't have any advice specifically for private landlords other than I'd really encourage them not to stick their heads in the sand for too much long about this, irrespective of what the vagaries of government policies are. And I do understand the uh, frustrations with things coming and going and uh, target dates being moved and all that sorts of stuff, but they and won't get kicked down the road forever. I think it's time to act. So interesting, because I guess the way I see it, there is an imperative, there just isn't a legal imperative yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the social housing sector, it was by 2030, you have to get everything to EPC band C. That, and, and they've known that's been coming, those landlords have known that have been coming for quite some time. When the funding was added into the mix, which is only a couple of years ago, there was there has been a massive and quick response to that. So those are the conditions you need to recreate in the private rented sector too. Well, we'll have a chat about that offline. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, okay, so when people who own or manage properties want to improve their energy efficiency, they often look first at their EPC, at their energy performance certificate. Do EPC recommendations necessarily align with past 2035? And what happens if someone just follows some of the measures in their EPC instead? Okay, so past 2035 is a British standard, but it's not in itself an energy efficiency standard. So it doesn't prescribe measures. It doesn't tell you what you should do. Uh, what it does do is it says that you need to put somebody in charge of those retrofit projects who can make the right decisions for property and people who live in it. And part of that job, sadly, is to work around the fact that the things that 
RDSAP and, and EBC spit out are absolutely clearly not always the right things to do. So now, you know, there would be no need to do that if we had a methodology and approach which was foolproof, but no one's created one of those yet. And the better ones, the better energy models or energy modeling tools that we have are quite complex and not widely adopted. So, you know, it does come down to retrofit coordinator and a retrofit designer who know what's what, making the right decisions for the right property at the right time. So they're not mutually exclusive, I don't think. But you're not particularly recommending just following some of the measures in the... I mean, I've tried it for myself on my own property and it gave me absolutely tough advice. So no, <laughs> we, we would never, ever suggest that you only rely upon the recommendations of an RDSAT survey or an RDSAT report to say what is right and wrong. And I just ask you and, and your listeners the question whether you would invest thousands of pounds based on a very quick and shallow assessment of a building using software that only asks a fraction of the right questions. And you've got some highly intelligent listeners who all about that (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely okay can you talk about eco and how has 2035 relates to that the the eco is the energy company obligation so it's one of many government sponsored retrofit funding schemes it's paid for via a levy on our energy bills and that generates about a billion pounds worth of funding every year to deploy on paying for energy efficiency improvements, especially for people living in fuel poverty. And that's deployed by the energy companies who collect the money from us. That scheme's been around since 2012, I think it was. And it's now in its fourth iteration. Hence, it's referred to as Eco4. It's a fourth different approach to that scheme. The Eco4 is really the first time that it's been deployed as what we might call the whole house retrofits program so you know it is requiring full compliance with past 2035 it's trying to encourage people to take a holistic view of a property and create sort of strategy or plan for that property over say the next 20 to 30 years rather than just looking for the most obvious bit of wall or most obvious bit of kit to replace so it's moved away from being a scheme that funds measures to a scheme that funds whole house retrofit which is absolutely the right way to go when we're thinking about decarbonisation, it requires compliance with past 2035. So again, they're sort of complementary things. Really, When I talk about all practices over the last decade, quite a significant proportion of those would have happened under the early days of eco where there was no, no past 2035. That was an excellent explanation. Thank you so much. So a training and certification are obviously absolutely vital for achieving net zero our net zero goals and for rescuing the housing market from the shortage that we have of quality energy efficient supply. However, and I'm sorry to say this, the energy efficiency accreditation and training companies that I've had involvement with have, to be honest, come across as a bit of a block to getting retrofits done because the accreditation process takes far longer than it should and the quality of training isn't that great and there is essentially an oligopoly. But they have to be government endorsed, which means there's a huge moat preventing other entrants. At the same time, from a climate perspective, we've basically already missed the boat. We're too late. So how will you, or have, or perhaps more appropriately, how can we prevent accreditation and training and qualifications from taking so long that the benefits of higher quality standards for delivery and asset management are outweighed? And that is a big question. <laughs> And I'm not even going to attempt to answer it in one go because it's very broad. So do you mind if I just break it down? Yeah, break it down. By bit. So 
So firstly, your point about the energy efficiency accreditation and training companies in the block. So firstly, I don't know, are you talking there about individuals or companies getting accredited or both? Individuals. I'm individuals, thinking, well, okay. I guess I'm thinking about my like experience from on the domestic energy assessor side and that kind okay. of but as I understand it, that's not unique to like that particular qualification. Okay. Okay. I mean, I won't get into talking about individual companies. As a whole, is that the most aggressive group of organizations, you know, who are dedicated to tackling climate change and eradicating fuel poverty? Not really. No. So I have some sympathy with what you're saying. It's also fairly bureaucratic. So and many of the things that they spend a lot of time looking for and picking boxes around aren't actually the most important thing. So I sort of share some of your concerns about that sector. We're not really part of it, if I'm honest. Perhaps if I was, I might see that differently because I'm sure there are realities about what they do. So, but look, clearly, I'm not aware of any major issues about it taking a long time for individuals to gain accreditation, but I've never tried to do it myself, so, so I don't really know. We do need to make it as simple and easy as possible. Otherwise, the already very busy builders and surveyors and architects that we have will continue to dodge the retrofit bullet because they've got plenty of work to get on with anyway. So we don't want to put a blockage in the way. So now, in terms of the quality of training, I think there are some aspects of that training offer, which I absolutely agree with that around. And there's somewhere I think they do a perfectly good job, but it doesn't go far enough. And I'll give you one or two examples. So we didn't feel that the training of retrofit assessors, the people who are going to carry out surveys of properties was good enough. The PAS actually, for some reason, is quite lightweight on that. It doesn't require people to hold qualification. That we don't feel you could look at those courses that are offered there and say that leads to competent retrofit assessors. It's sort of a domestic energy assessor is the requirement, and that's a very short course, and there's no real prerequisite to get onto it. So I suppose that's where an organization like ours, which is pretty obsessed with competence, to be honest, We've developed a level four retrofit assessor qualification, which is underpinned by competence and is written by the or co-authored with the chair of the British Standard for Retrofit Assessment. There's no market driver for that course at all. So there aren't hordes of people taking it because it's not required by the PADS, but it's there. And it's hopefully, I think, when the painful lessons around needing retrofit assessors to genuinely be competent come along, there is something there that can be used as to underpin that. So that's all we can do, really, is continue to develop the appropriate courses, the appropriate qualifications, and to try and get buy-in from employers that this competency-based trading pays back in spades, because we really need a race to the top. And as usual, if there's a race to the top, there's also a bit of a parallel race to the bottom going on. So you just have to pick a side, really. I'm not sure I agree that there's an oligopoly. I think there probably was, but as I say, we're not in it. And I think we're probably the market leading in retrofit trading, or oh, yes, stand to be corrected if that's the case. So I think the fact that, that standards require people to hold qualifications has opened up the market to a much wider set of organizations that have different sorts of aims. So perhaps agree to differ on that. Well, and perhaps you're changing the landscape. Well, that's what retrofit needs. Frankly, it needs disruption, it needs shaking up, it needs game-changing initiatives. And we haven't, you said earlier, with the boat, I mean, I... Again, I don't quite agree with that, but that oh, I'm a, that's quite all right. From a climate science perspective, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. But I think we have to be practical and we have to be really big and bold in what we do. So I still tend to take a glass half full approach to that. 
and focus on our bit and what you feel we need to do in order to play our role. So we won't, in terms of UK decarbonisation, we won't get to where we need to do with be without decarbonising our housing stock. And we can't do that without tens, if not hundreds of thousands of competent people. So we sort of focus on that. We don't tend to, to get distracted by too much else. All being a team would absolutely say that I fail every time on that front, but I try my best to stay focused on that and, and positive about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a very good answer. And that's a very good, I mean, you're completely right. There's no point in sort of bemoaning the, what's already passed and probably the best way to prevent any of this stuff, accreditation, training, qualifications, standards from taking too long and outweighing the benefits is just to stay focused on, you know, day by day, like you said, training as many people, delivering as many retrofits as possible and just keeping going and keeping trying to deliver what we need to deliver. Good retrofits. Okay. Avoid the bad stuff. Yeah. And if listeners want to find out more about the Retrofit Academy or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? We're on social media in terms of LinkedIn and Facebook. So there are always good ways to find us. And also our website, which is retrofitacademy.org. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.